Hey Changemakers, welcome to another episode of the Sacred Changemakers podcast. My name is Jane Worrelow and I have an amazing guest lined up for you today. Now this podcast is about change and transformation, but not just any old change. We believe in change for good, which lies at the intersection of three things, personal, professional and social transformation. So come with us on a journey as we go behind the scenes with people who are making a real difference in our world. Each episode, we're going to be diving deeply into topics at the intersection. Sometimes we'll be interviewing thought leaders, sharing tools and resources, and sometimes we'll be leading deep dive conversations, tackling the challenging issues of our times. Now, before I introduce today's guest, I have one small request. Would you be willing to go to iTunes or whatever app it is that you're listening to us on, subscribe and leave a rating and review? It's so helpful. It enables the algorithms to find us, helps people find our community, and it helps our guests get their messages out to more people. It's just a small thing, but it would mean so much to us. So thank you. Okay. Are you ready to be inspired? Because today, our guest on the podcast this week is Greg Berry. Greg is a whole wealth advisor at Conscious Capital Wealth Management, a unique wealth advisory firm dedicated to integrating mindfulness into every aspect of business. For over 25 years, Greg has been an advisor to entrepreneurs, investors, philanthropists, and executives, both in the famous entrepreneurial ecosystem of Boulder, Colorado, and across several continents. He guides people at different points of wealth creation to evolve their relationship with wealth and money towards more holistic and responsible approach, which is now commonly called impact investing. For over 10 years, he's been an activist and catalyst for the impact investing community in Colorado. So welcome, Greg. Thank you, Jane. It's a pleasure and an honor to join you. Thank you. And I am excited about our conversation today. Now, we have co-created a title together called How Do We Change How We Think About Money? And that just gets me really quite excited inside. I'm like, yes, that is a conversation we need to be having right now. But before we do, Greg, let me ask you, you know, our listeners have heard your professional bio, and I'd love to ask you about the real life human that lies behind that bio. Tell us a bit about him. Mm, thank you so much for asking. And it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. And it's a real gift to be uh, in a community of people who understand and appreciate the depth and the nuance of the questions that you're asking. And so I just want to really appreciate you and the work that you're doing to organize and catalyze us. Um, you know, as it's, it's often easier for us to talk about others um, than it is to talk about ourselves. But briefly, you know, my passions are in exploring the wilderness, you know, and for uh, much of my life, um, that's been about been about exploring the uh, the external wilderness, the actual physical wilderness, right? As a skier and a mountain biker and a hiker and a mountaineer, um, I spend a lot of my time in these large natural spiritual spaces that make us um, feel small and make us come back to an understanding of our relationship to the broader ecosphere and ultimately to the universe, right? There's there's really nothing like um, lying, uh, you know, in an open field, um, hundreds or more miles from any sort of city or civilization and looking up at the stars, you know, mm. and not only do we gain access to the, just the extraordinary and exquisite beauty 
therein, but also it reconnects us to our fundamental humanness and to our um, to uh, the, the history of human. And, and you know, I often find myself imagining, you know, what was it like for proto-human um, to be looking up at the stars, right? And essentially looking up at more or less the same stars that I'm looking up at right now. And so it's that that deep connection to being human. Um, in slightly more pragmatic terms, I'm a father of two teenagers. Um, I, uh, you know, am uh, in, in, in deep community here in Boulder, Colorado, um, in addition to all the outdoor wilderness pursuits I love. I've got a very active Tai Chi practice and, um, and have a, you know, a deep sort of Taoist view of the world. So that probably does a, a moderately um, reasonable job of, of encapsulating who and what I'm doing here. Yeah, thank you, Greg. Now you talked there about you know, the wilderness, exploring it um, externally and potentially internally as well, but you talked about the deep connection to being human. And I'm just wondering, you work in the financial kind of world. So how does that inform what you do as a whole wealth advisor? It's mm, a great question. Thank you. I, for me, it's, you know, the work that we do is much more about people than it is about money. Right. And, and, you know, one of the, the frames that we use in our business is to help people align their money with their values. But really, even that is, is a relatively um, simplistic view of things, right? In the end, really, most of the work that I do is help people make peace with their relationship with money, right? Yeah. And so um, one of the ways that we do that is by getting investments that you can feel good about, right? You never need to feel bad about what's in your portfolio. And we definitely don't want people losing sleep about the, the um, negative impacts that their investments might be making. Mm -hmm. um, but for different people, those are different issues. And so that's a lot of what we do is we spend a lot of time getting to know our clients and the families that we work with so that we can make the right recommendations on how your money should be allocated. Mm. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense to me. And yet, you know, I've, I've spent some time in the fin different financial worlds. And I, I have to be honest and say, I've never come across someone like yourself and the work that's, that conscious capital management are doing. You know, to me, it's almost like, wow, like, there really are people that, that care about people in finance. And I'm giggling as I'm saying that, but like the stereotypical view of the financial world is like, like profit. It's about the God of wealth is profit. So what do you say to that? Well, I would say that, you know, one of the things that's interesting, first of all, I think that, you know, for the most part, I think that you're right, right? Most like the stereotype exists for a reason. Yeah. Right. And what we see is especially folks who've been in the industry for a long time and then have taken a break. You know, I think that one of the things that's fascinating to me is as I am, um, I'm, uh, I'm about six months out from turning 50. And so as we age, um, you know, different people kind of come to their awareness of self and awakening in different ways. But I'm starting to see that as people age, they start to ask themselves deeper and harder questions. And so I think it's true, the caricature, the sort of Gordon Gecko-like um, caricature of people on Wall Street is true and 
like most of those people also do have a heart and they do want good things to happen. And so it's a question of how do the people organize themselves and how do the systems organize themselves? You know, and, and I, I'm always careful to make a distinction between the individual humans working in finance and the way the financial industry and financial systems work, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that feels like a really valuable distinction because, I mean, you're bringing the human, it's like you're bringing the humanity back into the conversation. Well, that's really, that's really right. And, you know, one thing that um, I know that we want to touch on a little bit is impact, this notion of impact investing, mm. right? And without getting too esoteric, I'll say that people have been trying to do some version of responsible investing for a very long time, right? And it actually goes back, interestingly enough, to, you know, old um, Christian groups that didn't, that wanted their money aligned with, once again, they wanted their money aligned with their values, you know? And so at the time they were saying they didn't want to have sin stocks, right? That was the language back then was sin stocks, you know? And we've gone through many iterations of how we make these distinctions. And so about 10 years ago, there was the introduction of this framework called ESG. And ESG is an acronym that stands for Environment, Social Good, and Governance. Right. And it's the way that today Wall Street and corporations measure what we commonly call sustainability. Right. Mm. And so when you look at the evolution and so, it, you know, even five years ago, ESG was was pretty um, moderately adopted and poorly understood by Wall Street. But over the past five and, and more 10 years, it's really gone from being a pretty fringe notion to a very commonly understood way to make investments and or a factor to consider when making investments and so what we see is his you know historically in the old days there was just this notion of exclusion of bad things right it was very easy to say i don't want tobacco i don't want um, guns you know i don't want alcohol uh, in my portfolio right and that that was an easy thing to say but but it's harder to say what's a good company and what's a bad company. And so ESG gave us those tools. And as a result, it's freed us up, actually, because now we have a common language for what does it mean to be a responsible investment. And so now we do get to come back around to who is the human being. And in our business, which I think is quite uncommon, is what is the spirit of this human? You know, and how do they express themselves in the world and how can we support that work so that they're able to be more fully themselves and more fully expressed? Mm -hmm. Now, that in itself seems to me quite a unique notion to think of, you know, to think of sitting down with a financial advisor and they're going to talk to me about the spirit of me as a human and how I can express myself more fully through my finances. I don't think, I think that would, in a way that, that fills me with awe just hearing you say that, Greg, because mm. that feels so different. And I'll speak about my own experience. That feels so different to any experience I've had in my life around right. money. Right, yeah. that's right. And understand that different people want and have different expressions of it. Right. Yes. Like I have clients that have very deep, the way I talk about, um, we have, I kind of think about three characteristics of the clients that I work with. And one of them that I talk about is evolved worldview. 
-hmm. right? And, and, I, and I use that language very specifically because it, it encompasses a number of different types of people, right? Some people with an evolved worldview have a very deep spiritual practice, mm. right? And I can really sit there and honor one's spiritual practice and meet them where they are and then help them understand how to uh, honor their spiritual practice and function in the economic universe, right? Right. Another way of, um, of that, to think about that, is people who really spend a lot of time in sort of the personal development space, right? And they're, they're um, going to retreats and taking classes and really digging in on who are they and, and really um, building their own story of self and doing a lot of their own sort of personal psychotherapy, for lack of a better way of talking about it. Um, and... The, and, and those folks have a very different approach to money than spiritual folks do, right? And there are other categories. There are categories of people who sort of live on the fringe of society, you know, and you can think about um, the Burning Man tribe, right? Mm -hmm. It is a tribe that I work with quite, quite frequently. And um, there are people who just see the world completely differently and they see a world of possibilities and, and different ways of living together. You know, the same is true for people who work in the cannabis industry or mm -hmm. in AI, right? And, and some very sort of esoteric work in, on the edges of society, um, but they see the world differently than the mainstream does. And so that's what we mean by evolved worldview. And I think that what's unique about um, my practice and our work here is we can see and honor those people and give them good financial advice within the frame of who they are. Right. And so we start with the basics, but we really quickly move into, but that might not be right for you, you know? And so we really tailor our advice to who the person is rather mm -hmm. than just have a standard. If you're 54 years old and your kid's going to go to college in five years, you need to <laughs> save this much money. Like that may or may not be true for you. Right. right. So right. we always start with a really solid understanding of finances. And then we say, there are multiple ways to get to where you're going. And let's have a really honest conversation. Let's keep the math in mind. Right. And, and um, you know, I've grown quite weary of the spiritual bypassing that's quite common in, in, um, in many communities, including Boulder. And, um, you know, it's not, I, I'm not a believer that you can just put your feet up on the, you know, on the table in the back patio and wish for millions to fall on your lap and have it happen. Like that's, that's generally not the way it goes. Right. Um, and so, you know, there, there is that intersection, right. Of the three dimensionality and even two dimensionality that we find um, in money systems. Right. And the five or seven or N dimensionality that we find in, in some people's evolved worldviews. And so the work that we do is integrate those two in a way that fits for that particular individual. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm starting to kind of get a good understanding of what you're talking about here. And, and yet there's still a part of me, and I'm sure this will be true for some listeners, thinking, wow, there is actually a place for spirituality in finance. Very much so, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, when we were talking about co-creating a title, um, you mentioned a question which I think is very provocative, especially in the context that we're talking about here in finances. And you, you talked about what does it mean to be whole? Now, I'd love you to speak to that, you know, in terms of, you know, what does it mean to be whole and particularly around wealth? 
and financials? Well, and we were talking, and I mentioned earlier that I'm a Taoist, right? Mm -hmm. And um, that I have a, a strong Tai Chi practice. And, you know, there are a lot of ways to answer that question of what does it mean to be whole? But I think that this notion that, um, that you, when you have sort of, when you're, de when you're developing notions of happiness and sufficiency and how much money are you gonna need for retirement and these types of questions, I think that whenever you look externally for those answers, you're gonna struggle, mm. you know? And when you can find those answers internally um, and when you can really find that sort of internal fulfillment and satisfaction with self, then the external conditions are less, um, they're less demanding, if you will, right? Of, of yourself, of your psyche, of your spirit. And so what it means to be whole is to, is to be comfortable and be at peace with what is and recognize that you are where you are because of all of the things you've done up until now, you know? And if you don't like those patterns, it's up to you to change them. Hmm. And if you have some, you know, once I have, pick a number, right? Everybody has their own number, but once I have $3 million or $30 million, then I'll be happy. Like that game, that game will just cause misery for your entire life, hmm. right? And if you can say, you know, if and when I get to these financial thresholds, I'll be able to do X, Y, and Z. I'll be able to move to the Bahamas. I'll be able to um, stop working full time, whatever it may be. Like those are mathematical realities, but, but you don't have to tie your own personal, mental and psychological and emotional well-being to them, hmm. you know? And so what it means to be, have a holistic relationship with money is to first have a holistic relationship with yourself, you know, and to, and to have that equanimity um, that comes often comes with a spiritual practice. Um, and then we can find um, that deep sense of fulfillment. And then we can start to plan for now, how is it that we should make investments? What are the changes that you want to make in your career, given that we're now once again in a new economic era? You know, we can begin to answer those questions, you know, and that brings us to a deeper, more, um, more whole, a whole sense of self, right? It's, it's money is this ultimately invention of humanity, right? Mm -hmm. And we tend to give it more power than it deserves. And so if we can balance our relationship with money with our, into our relationship with self, um, it just brings a, often brings a more peaceful, um, a more peaceful way in the world, right? And you can just kind of soften your edges around it. Um, a lot of people have fear around money, regardless of how much they have, you know? Um, so, right? Like, there's a lot of people who fear that they don't have enough, but for a lot of people that have more than they need to survive, um, they have an, a, a completely different set of tensions and fears, um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel really um, blessed and fortunate to be able to be in very, very intimate conversations with people about those things. But, you know, I'm also, uh, in addition to all the other things, I'm a big fan of uh, the Grateful Dead. And they have a lyric that says, you know, I don't know, but I've been told it's hard to run with the weight of gold. On the other hand, I've heard it said it's just as hard with the weight of lead. 
you know, and, and I find that to be really true in my practice. You know, yeah. everybody struggles with money, whether you have it or you don't. Yeah. And you really touched on something there that has definitely been my experience as a coach, um, working with people around their business and their money flow. Um, I've always noticed that an individual's relationship with money is somehow a very intimate relationship. It, it almost goes beneath the conscious mind in a way to almost habitual patterns or beliefs that they've picked up unknowingly and unconsciously through childhood or whatever. And so I loved it when you said, you know, you get into intimate conversation with your clients because that's, I think money brings things up in us. I think it's a very emotional relationship that a lot of people have with a lot of tensions. It is. It's, um, it's really powerful. And I, I feel like, you know, it's one of those things where the, the younger me was much more of an activist and a radical. And, um, you know, the 25 year old me is very upset with the 49 year old me that I work in finance, right? He's, he is not aligned <laughs> with this stage of life. And, uh, and at the same time, like I've grown into um, a really beautiful place with it, you know, and I'm able to now hold people and, um, and hold a really safe container for those conversations. And, you know, I don't think that I could tell you what the curriculum is to get good at that, right? Like it's yeah. just this, this set of, um, of experiential capital that I've developed that, that allows me to be, um, to be comfortable with, with holding uncomfortable space for people. Yeah. And so I want to ask you about our title because mm. how do we change how we think about money? Right. And I'd love for you to give us a few access points about that but also to do it in the context of why we even need to do this. <laughs> right. right. Well, you know, it's, well, why do we even need to do this? That's a beautiful question. You know, it's funny. Like one of the reasons yeah. that the 49 year old me can work in finance and the 25 year old me couldn't is, um, you know, I used to have a lot of um, value waiting to money. Right. I thought mm -hmm. that like, basically like money was a problem for society and it created a lot of sort of pain and suffering. And then it was unequally, um, unequally allocated. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and we can see that in a number of different places, right. It's um, you know, one of my favorite lines is, uh, you know, the future is here. It's just unevenly distributed. <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's one of my favorites too. Yeah. Right. And so, and so I say the same thing about like, there's enough money out there for everybody. It's just unevenly distributed. Right. And right. that reeks of like massive social justice problems. And we're seeing that very much reflected to us, to us in the headlines every day, you know, whether through the black lives matter lens or through the COVID lens, right? We, we see how it feels really unjust the way resources are allocated um, among mm -hmm. humans. And, and, that, and so that's, that's the broad underlying why is in the, in the analysis, money is the way we exchange value, you know? And it's this um, very esoteric uh, system of exchanging value with one another. And it, it made so much more sense, you know, five, six, seven hundred years ago when we had very simple systems for exchange and they were just representations of grain and representations of, of horses and representations of these simple things that we needed to be able to exchange um, beyond just direct barter. 
and yet it's gotten so incredibly complicated and that the impact that it has on our lives, having it or not having it is so high now that we, in order to be whole, in order to be well, in order to sleep well, you know, it is important to build a healthy and comfortable relationship with money or you're going to lose a lot of sleep over it, right? It is stressful and it is ultimately the thing that drives how our society runs. I mean, it's a very, very powerful tool that we've created. Mm. And so if, if you're not at peace with it, um, you're just not at peace. Yeah. I really feel that. And, you know, with working with a number of clients over the years, I was sharing with you before we press record that, you know, these tensions around money, our relationship with money is really define it defines our lives in some ways particularly in the west here in the capital economy and and i i just really wonder about what it takes for people and i'm i'll say this i'll own it myself i don't know that regardless of the amount of money i've had in my life that i've ever felt truly wealthy <laughs> mm. it's very interesting I'll, I'll i'll tell stories and of course you know one of the most important um, responsibilities I have is the responsibility of confidentiality, right? Of and course, so, yes. Um, I want to talk in, in very, very vague terms uh, yes. about a couple of people I know. Um, and and I'll, I'll talk only about my closest friends because I'll, I'll have a little <laughs> bit more uh, um, ability, a little more latitude with some of them, I think. Um, so I have a very good friend of mine. And, and if you were to look at his balance sheet and his age and his sort of just nominal factors. If any other wealth advisor were to look at him, he would think he hadn't done very well in life, right? Right. right? He doesn't have a lot of money saved up. You know, he has a little bit of equity in his home. He has a business, um, but he doesn't, he hasn't put hundreds of thousands, much less millions of dollars away. And yet he is extraordinarily um, loved, deeply loved in his community. His profession is one that puts him in touch with caregiving and, and really helps him. He's, he's tremendously, um, uh, he's, he's a community organizer. He cares for people. He, and, and he's very good at sort of growing food and all those things. And so when I take a, a multiple frame, you know, when I look at all the types of capital, he's got a really deep spiritual practice. And when I look at all the types of capital, He's extraordinarily well-resourced in the world, mm. even though he doesn't have what most people would think is a lot of money, mm. right? And he's one of the more balanced, well people I know. And mm. he's wealthier in the broadest sense than someone who's got many millions of dollars, who's ill and afraid and alone, you know, and, um, and, and kind of miserable um, in, their, uh, in their sort of walled garden, if you will. Hmm. And just listening to you describe your friend in that way, it, it makes me curious about this time that we're in right now, you know, because we're recording this, um, you know, during the, the COVID pandemic, still a lot of countries are in quarantine, but we're starting to kind of come out of our homes now. We're starting to kind of come back in a way to to life and and I don't think there's any going back I didn't mean that but I think you know I wonder if this is the way life and business and the financial industry 
is going now? Is it going to be like, is that something you hope that we will get to a place where we can look at many different types of wealth and not just look at it through the lens of, of profit and the, in America anyway, the dollar? It's a great question. I would say, yes, of course, I hope that um, human beings are able to come to peace with themselves and their relationship with money. And I do think that we would have a more, um, a healthier society if we were all able to do that. Um, do I think that's the way it's going? Not really. You know, like I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take that far of a step. Now, it is interesting when we look at the mechanics of how we make responsible investments that large um, banks, large financial institutions, and many of the top corporations are coming to understand that they've got a bigger relationship and there is a slow but meaningful evolution from shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism, right? right? And that is moving both faster and slower than I would have anticipated. Um, right. You know, and we're seeing more things change as the result of Black Lives Matter. And of course, a lot of that is, I hate to use, I'm making up a term blackwashing, which sounds horrible coming out of my mouth, but, but which is to say, you see a lot of companies putting a black square up on Instagram mm -hmm. or nominally promoting Black Lives Matter while they've got, you know, 3% minority rep, you know, representation in their staff and 0% diversity on their boards. And I mean, there are a lot of, you know, really deep structural problems that we have in, in the economy and it's changing, you know, and we're seeing large organizations like Unilever is a very good example. You know, and there's a great story to be told about Unilever's acquisition of Ben and Jerry's and Ben and Jerry's, you know, when it was an independent company, was one of the absolute darlings of the impact investing and social entrepreneur communities, right? They were doing all the right things, right? They were ethically sourcing their materials. They were giving a lot of money to charity. They were uh, very responsible employers, and I can go on and on about them. And then they got acquired by this behemoth of a corporation, Unilever. And... I, you know, I know some of the people that were that were um, quite intimately involved with that transition, and effectively, what happened is they were able to. Um, it's funny to use a, a viral metaphor these days, but they were able to infect Unilever with this notion of being a responsible business. And now, when you look at it from a um, from a metrics perspective around a number of the things that ESG measures, Unilever is a quite responsible company and they've made a number of important changes to their business practices that while it doesn't mean that they're never cutting a tree down, nor does anyone ever go hungry who works for them, like those, those are not necessarily true, but, but they've made substantial improvements um, that have really reduced harm in a number of places and I don't want to say that it's all because of Ben and Jerry's, but it was Ben and Jerry's was a catalyst for that transition at Unilever, mm -hmm. right? And so um, we see some big companies making some substantial changes and that's what it's going to take to, you know, and, and ultimately the other reason that I think a lot of people have fear is there's a lot at stake, you know? I mean, like on one hand, like my spiritual self knows that everything will be fine 
<laughs> right? Um, and at the same time, when we, when we engage our brains, you know, we have good reason to believe that we're going to use up the livability of the earth within another hundred years, yeah. you know? And so those two things in, in contrast are, um, are worthy of attention and consternation. You know, it's not something that it's just easy to, to overlook and go back about your daily business. Yeah. Wow. And I think that's one of the things that I really value in the conversations I've had with you, Greg, is, is, is almost like the belief, like I've worked for decades now in leadership development and in the C-suite of some global corporations. Thank you, by the way, for doing that work. I don't, I don't have the constitution for that work. I really don't. Well, I'm not so sure I do now. <laughs> Very important. So you were getting to a point, but thank you. Yeah. And, and it's been a little bit like pushing water uphill, trying to open to the conversations that matter and to, you know, again, I've got confidentiality that I have to be aware of, but to, to open the conversation away from just the I, me, mine, right. Which is, you know, how can I get better? How can, how can I, I have more money. So how can I get the promotion or whatever to the C-suite? And also like, how can my team, my organization be more profitable? How can we grow like endless growth? How can we grow? And then trying to open the conversation to, yes, that's good. And we can, we can strategize for that. That's good. But now let's have a look at what the world needs. Let's talk about, you know, the, the United Nations SDGs, which have been around now for a number of years and trying to get them to that conversation is a challenge, generally speaking. And there are some great people out there, like you say, Unilever and and some others that are doing really great work in this space. However, generally I found it really challenging because it always kind of, and they don't necessarily use these words, but the senior team or the CEO will turn around and say, yeah, but what's in it for me? Mm. (laughs) like what's in it for me and I just wondered if you were in the room if you were there fielding these kind of resisting questions I wonder what you'd say to like when they turn to me and they say yeah but why why should we do that right well I would say (laughs) of course it always it's it's always contextual you and I were talking about that before we uh we started recording it's always contextual, right? Who is the person? What do they care about? What are they a grandfather? Are they a mother? Uh, you know, what, what's their relationship to the world? What actually matters to them? Because I would, I would, once I understood that question, you know, and in the case of I'll use a stereotype, right? A, a sort of a patriarchal grandfather, mm-hmm. you know, um, what advice do you give your grandkids? I would, I would, I would get into like, what do you tell them about the future? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you tell them about your grandfather? You know, what are the what are the characteristics that you look for in people? You know, and I would I would try to move it out of a narrow conversation about profitability or what's in it for you. And and it would just it would depend on the individual and it would depend on my role. But I would tend to challenge them, hmm. you know, and I would in in a, in a loving and respectful way challenge their. Um, their underlying beliefs, like when, and, and so the question would ultimately come up, when is enough enough? Yeah. You know, do you need $50 million? Do you need a hundred million dollars? Do you need to be a billionaire? If you got to being a billionaire, let's assume that you get there. Yeah. What then? What do you do once you're a billionaire? Do you need, I need $2 billion? Like uh, for what? 
what do you actually need it for? You've got now 10 houses and 30 cars and right. a helicopter and a, and a ship. And, you know, you can, and if you're in the whole Ray Kurzweil, you know, singularity thing, like, let's say we can upload your consciousness to the thing. Let's say you're Elon Musk, like you're on Mars. You and a million people are on <laughs> Mars. Like, you've achieved it. Like, congratulations. Like, what an amazing achievement. Like, now what? Right. Now what? And, and ultimately, like, does he really want to go to Jupiter? Like, you know, like, like how far out do you need to go? And so I don't know anything about Elon, right? I don't have any personal relationship with him. I just know, you know, what I see in the media, which is a tiny fraction of what's in the media about him, you know, but I'd wager that, like, ultimately, like, there's some deep-seated not enough in Elon, right? Mm -hmm. Somewhere something happened, you know, that's got him so driven, like, because there's a sense of like, something's not enough somewhere along the line, right? And so I would just, I would, one way or another, I would want to get to the bottom of that because it's, and he's doing, you know, arguably like truly great things for our society. And yet, you know, is he, is he comfortable and happy? Like, obviously not, you know? And I've actually come to this interesting place. You know, there's, um, there's a guy here in Boulder named Brad Feld. And Brad is one of the more successful venture capitalists of his generation. Um, he's definitely a leader in, in our community and really well-known. He's a, you know, famous blogger, author, investor, um, all these things. And it's been really interesting. Brad has, has a very public um, battle with his own mental health and with depression. And he's brought to the fore a really, um, a really public and vulnerable conversation about mental health and entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that in the C-suite and among entrepreneurs, I've come to this realization and, it's, and, it's, and it comes from a place of deep compassion that in order to be successful like that, you've probably got a little bit of mental health disorder, mm -hmm. right? And that, and that there's probably some real damage that got done somewhere early on, right? That I think truly healthy people ultimately stop at some level of wealth and achievement, right? Yeah. Um, and, it's, and it's the truly wild ones that keep pushing. And, and why, why are they so wild? I think I don't pretend to know, but I, I certainly have my opinions about that. Mm. Now, listening to you there, I'm going to make a, a bit of a leap and an mm. assumption sure. because you're talking there about, you know, um, and, and I really get the individual conversation, finding out about that individual and then tailoring, you know, m through multiple types of capital, the wealth and what that means to them. I get that. Yeah. And then as you were talking there, I was just like with that brilliant question, like, you know, when is enough enough? And then I thought in the bigger context, in the systems, in the cultures that we live in, in our education systems, it's like we almost, like most people I've worked with who are leaders, you know, at some level, either as an entrepreneur in their own business or in a, in a corporation, and maybe that's a large global corporation or whatever, it's almost like they feel like they have to be who they think they should be. Right. And, who, and in the systems we've created almost like a, a no win game in a way that there isn't, it's never enough. 
like if you look at shareholders when is it ever enough that we look to maximize not optimize so how do we get from when we're in the systems like how do we get to change it feels to me like we need a systemic like change so that the systems are valuing different things too not just the individuals so i agree i think it's both Mm. i think that you know we clearly have uh an evolution in consciousness right that dates back to the late 60s and the early maharajis and other spiritual leaders who came to the west from the east right and we can thank all those you know hippie new age baby boomers who are, are easy to roll our eyes at for opening that pathway um in order for us to understand that and now we understand from a neuroscience perspective that we'll be more productive if we meditate every day right right? and we understand that we'll be able to handle more challenging situations you know if we're physically well you know and if we're exercising all the time we'll, we'll have more stamina for difficult times which of course we're in now yeah so that's the beginning of the personal transformation right and we see someone like ray dalio right ray dalio um is one of the most successful hedge fund operators ever mm-hmm. and is publicly states that it's his transcendental meditation that allows him to make good decisions in these hyper challenging times right and if you look at look at it from a leadership perspective and we can go back to 2008 right there were some very important decisions that got made in in the latter half of 2008 that if they had been different decisions we would be living in a different world today and we start to learn and hear from some of the senior leaders that they have a deep meditative practice they have a they run every day whatever it may be and you know quite frankly without this becoming political at all we can see now with our 45th president you know someone who doesn't have those practices who kind of from the outside appears to be coming apart at the seams under deep pressure right and so i think that the personal revolution starts from a pragmatic place much more than it does a top-down spiritual seeking place. Mm -hmm. Um, Then the other side of it is we do have new systems for measuring value. And so the most um, simple and capitalist way to understand what I was talking about earlier, ESG investing, is ESG is a proxy for quality in investing, Mm -hmm. you know? And you can look at... um, Exxon and the Deepwater Horizon spill, if they had had better safety practices, better corporate responsibility, governance in in the metaphor of ES&G, they wouldn't have taken a huge hit to their bottom line when the Deepwater Horizon spill happened because it wouldn't have happened because they would have had better governance. Mm -hmm. And and the same is true towards, you know, in, in many, many different cases. And so we now have the you know blackrock is the largest asset manager in the world and the ceo and founder of blackrock is a guy named larry fink and for the last couple of years he's been saying explicitly in his annual letter to shareholders that companies have to have purpose and that they're likely to lose their social contract to be in business if all they do is maximize profitability 
And so we've got changing systems. We've got the UN Global Compact on Investing. We've got the SDGs. You know, our firm is, is a leader in this movement, but we use, in addition to using ESG, we use the UN SDGs to help understand our clients' values and understand how to make investments. And so systematically, things are changing and we're getting new and better systems to understand the long-term impacts that companies and industries have and also the internal transformation at a human level is happening. You know, the question of whether it's happening fast enough relative to natural resource depletion, including air quality and water quality, as well as, you know, all of the different, um, you know, natural systems that we see failing all around us. That's the, that's the ultimate question for humanity. Like, can we evolve faster than we ruin the planet? Like, hard to know the answer to that one. That's the big question. Yes, that totally is. I love that. Can we evolve faster than we ruin the planet? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so I, 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 I'm, I just want you to know I'm grinning from ear to ear here, mm -hmm. listening to you speak about this, because it's almost like for me in the, the space and the profession I've been working in, it's like, yes, like at last, <laughs> right? There's a, and I feel there's an opening and I do feel the momentum that you're talking about. Yes, you know, I, I do feel we're a bit late to, to some of these openings, but I think they're there and they're happening. And I'd love to get a sense from you, Greg, of, where you feel we're headed. <laughs> man, oh man, I wish I know, you know, I'll say it like, ask me in late November where I think we're headed, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's a hard time to be a conscious human on planet Earth, I, yes. you know, and um, ah, where do I think we're headed? I mean, boy, you know, I mean, the, the, the joke, of course, is like, if I knew the answer to that question, I wouldn't be on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right. right absolutely <laughs> um and uh and so you know i um i am an optimist right i i'm um while like i see the the incredibly dark shadow of the human spirit like mm. ultimately we find a way and i do think that each generation is faced with their own apocalyptic moments right and yeah. and you know i was not yet born during the russian missile crisis or the Q, sorry the cuban missile crisis mm. um but i can only imagine how close to annihilation it felt like the human species was in that moment right and i bet the same was true in world war 1 for those who were present to what was happening. Yeah. Um, and so where are we headed? I mean, I, I don't really know. Like, I, I think there's this really interesting um, bifurcation happening, right? And, and, and I think that there's, part of it is, is what I'll call the techno-utopians, right? Those, you know, embodied by Elon Musk and others, um, Ray Kurzweil, you know, the Google guys and so on, who, who seem to think that the, that we'll find a technological solution to everything, right? Mm -hmm. That for every you know, acre of Amazon forest that cuts down, we can create, we can decarbonize the atmosphere through some new technological innovation. And for every bit of, um, every bit of waste uh, you know, and plastic trash in the ocean, there's, uh, 
solar power trash collecting boat that we can deploy to pick that stuff all up and so on and so forth. And so there's the techno utopians and then there's what I'll call kind of the new indigenous, right? Those that want to go back to a simpler way of life, right? And, and I do think that for them, and, that, and that's among the people who realize that there's even a problem to consider at the first place, <laughs> right? Like, right. I, think that, I think that we make a huge mistake among this, this class of, of people who are paying attention to the world that most people are paying attention to the world. Right. And I don't think that's true at all. I think that most people are like, are living in a world that happens to them, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very few of us realize that the, that the world is happening by us and even fewer realize the world is happening through us. Right. right. And so, um, and so I think that there's a broad awakening happening in humanity right. and you know, at the same time, like we're really forced to confront our shadow. And mm -hmm. so I don't know how that goes. Right. Like I, I find it fascinating to look at, you know, we've got this really interesting case to, to bring it down to some of the work that we do on a daily basis. We've got this really interesting thing happening right now where the stock market has near record values while the baseline economy is in a depression. Wow. What is that? Yeah. Really? Like, why is that? And it's a fascinating question to really ponder. And I can give you a, a technical answer, right? I can give you a, a sort of more esoteric answer, but it's just, we're at that point of divergence. You know, why, why was it, why was it the killing of George Floyd that sparked this whole uprising when so many uh, people of color have been killed by the police over the last five and 10 years? Like right, why, why were all of those sort of just, just headlines for a minute and then they went by and then why all of a sudden did the streets erupt with this one? Like, these are hard things to really know, but clearly we're in these moments of big transition. So my sense is that we're evolving, but I think that many of us think that all the systems are gonna change. And, and I'm here to tell like all of the conscious people listening, the power and the momentum of the flywheel of the global economy is not going to stop. Yeah. Right. We're not going to see, I have many clients who are fear like, Oh, and then, then the, the, the stock market will collapse. Mm -hmm. And I just believe me, I subscribed to that worldview for a long time, but I just don't see that happening. Like, currencies can collapse, but they'll just get replaced by other currencies and companies can fail but they'll get replaced by other companies and energy systems. Like we could in our lifetime, see the end of oil and gas as the primary energy source, but they'll be replaced by, you know, solar and wind and hydro. And guess what? Those energy sources are not as clean as we want them to be, right? What are we going to do when all the solar panels you know, stop being as effective and we have to now put all these nasty chemicals. What are we going to do? Are we going to put them back in the ground? Like, how are we going to dispose of them? We don't have any strategy for that at all. And so it's, it's just always more complicated and nuanced. But I think that this notion that the global economy is going to stop or all of a sudden the whole thing is going to fail is, 
is short-sighted. You know, it's a very, very powerful force on this planet. One of the most powerful tools we've ever created. Yeah. And it's not just going to stop because we wake up. Right. <laughs> and thank you so much for that perspective, because I found quite a few insights there when you were speaking. And, you know, and I, I love that you're just speaking straight to it so that we can hear. <laughs> now, one of the things that we talk about at Sacred Changemakers is, you know, like we when we feel called to take a stand, I think, for a change. Yes. And I'd love you to share with our listeners, you know, from your personal perspective, like what's your calling at mm. this time? What's the yeah. change that you want to take a stand for? Right. It's a, thank you for asking me that question. You know, if you would have asked me that question three or four months ago, you know, I would have said something like, money is the biggest leverage point that we have in the world and that we can choose to use it and design it for whatever purpose we want. Mm -hmm. Right. And that, and that my purpose was to, and is to, um, to help people gain an understanding of that in a way that they can enact it in their own lives. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I still pretty much believe in that. Like, I will say that, you know, as someone with a deep spiritual practice, you know, I'm, I'm still very clearly a privileged white male. I have all of the benefits that our society could possibly bestow on me. Um, and, you know, I'm um, forced to ask myself some very difficult and uncomfortable questions about that in the face of my continued um, inquiry and learning, you know, through the lens of Black Lives Matter and continuing to see the deep systemic injustice that we live in. You know, my, uh, my father's lineage is, um, you, know, uh, you know, through a Ukrainian um, Jewish background. And so, you know, we have a deep history of, um, of being, uh, you know, um, enslaved in the old days and, and being um, threatened. And of course, the Holocaust was a horrible time. And, and again, I'm very fortunate that we were able to escape all of that um, and, and end up here in the United States. And, and I live in a very comfortable community here in Boulder. Um, so I have this really interesting balance of you know, a deep epigenetic understanding of the suffering. Um, and, you know, yet I live in, in a position of privilege. And so, um, you know, I'm really struggling with that, to be honest. And, I, and I'm wrestling with some very deep um, sort of spiritual demons around like, how do I really relate to that? And where am I, where do I need to continue to confront those things? And how do we systemically First, personally, how do we systemically address those things? And so coming back to my initial statement, you know, how do we use money as a leverage point for change? Um, still very much true. And how do we make peace with our relationship with money? Still very much a key professional question for me. But more deeply, um, how do we find a place of social justice and how do we find a balance um, of these questions and, and, and doing it like very much internally first, you know, and, and actually, um, 
you know, while I've been a leader in my community for a long time, I find myself listening more and speaking less, you know, and taking one big step back um, from having an opinion about anything right now. Um, and, and really actively listening and making space for other voices to come forward where normally people would expect me to have an opinion on some of these things. So, um, so I am not entirely sure about the answer to that question right now, other than, you know, holding a, you know, a safe place for us to ask these questions and to really figure out how it is that we have to change our own behavior again, um, to, to answer the call of the moment. Yeah. And I want to thank you for the way you answered that, because I think you've created an opening there for some of our listeners, because, you know, whenever we're asked questions, we think we need to have an answer very often. <laughs> and I love the fact that, you know, there's, there's a lot of threads that, that are kind of weaving their way into what might be an answer for you, but you're still transparent enough to say, I don't know. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. right. I, and, and I think there are some questions, particularly now for me at this moment in time, which we don't have answers for. They, they demand that we live into them, that we listen more deeply internally and externally to really allow in a way, for me, the language I use around it is just allow life to show us the way. So I love that. Greg, thank you. Well, thank you so much. And I do, you know, it's interesting. I think that maybe the, um, the metaphor that, uh, that will make a good bit of sense to you is, um, so, you know, as, a, as an aging athlete, right, I've got a pretty beat up body, right? And so, um, but with my Tai Chi practice, I'm learning how to move energy through my body in a different way. And so as a skier and a biker and a climber and such, like, I, I'm in this constant tension between my broken down old man body and my new Tai Chi energy body, right. right? And I'm learning to transfer from one to another. Well, the same is very much true in my mind, right? And, mm -hmm. and in my mind, I'm, I'm, my, my old self is a Jewish intellectual um, problem solver, you know? And like, <laughs> I want to know, like, what, when is coronavirus going to be over? And how are we going to recover? And what's the economic plan? And who are the succeed? Who's going to win? Who's going to lose? And how is it going to work? I'm going to figure it out. And I'm going to tell everybody how it's going to work out. And they're all going to really reward me for that greatly because I'm so smart enough to figure it out with my Tai Chi and my Taoist mind, which is let go of the banks of the river and pick your feet up off the bottom. And it's really my work to do is to do my practice every day. And if I can do my practice every day and come back to center, then the conditions that face me in the day, I'll know what to do in the moment. And we can't anticipate all of the things and we can't figure out when coronavirus is gonna end. And we don't know who the winners and losers are gonna be. And so all we can do is be present in the, in the moment over and over again and do our best each day to, to be present to the challenges and questions that face us. And so I'm in that tension of those two things. I haven't let go of the old stuff. And I think that they serve us. It serves us to be aware of those things. And, you know, we can't possibly know. These systems are just too complicated to know. Right. Right. And I'm right there with you inside of that tension in my own world, definitely. So let me ask you a final question. If there was something that you hoped we'd get to today, something mm. you'd want to share with our listeners, what might it be? Well, 
I would say that, um, <laughs> well, you know, the thing that, that is, is really a passion for me is working with business owners. And I think that so many business owners get themselves caught up in a really lonely place where everybody wants something from them, right? Their investors want returns, their wives and husbands want new cars and new houses, their kids want educations, their staff wants raises, their, uh, everybody wants something. And, and so they end up very much alone. And, they, and, and, and the narrative that we have about business is that, we, that when we sell our business, we're successful, right? Yeah. And that when we get the exit, and it doesn't matter if we get $500,000 or $500 million for our business, that there's this massive status that comes with having sold your business and having a bunch of money at the end of it. And I want every business owner that's listening right now to know that that is the beginning, not the end of the journey. And that a lot of the work that I do with people is to help figure out what are they going to do a day, a month, a year, 10 years after they sell their business and help them appreciate the beauty of the journey that they're on and to be present to each moment and then to be clear about what they're really doing it for. Because I, I, you know, again, here in Boulder, we have a lot of very successful business owners and I know a lot of people who sold their businesses for a lot of money and they're not satisfied and they're not happy and they're not at peace. And so I just want people to know that a, like it is lonely um, and B that the, the, the win, the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow isn't what you think it is. Right. Um, and the journey, it's more about the journey than the destination. Love it. Mm. Oh my gosh. I felt like you were talking just to me at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> thank you greg oh my gosh this has been such an insightful conversation thank you so much i know our listeners are going to get so much for our conversation thank you thank you so much jane it's an honor to be with you and uh i look forward to our ongoing friendship yeah okay listeners that's all for today thank you so much for listening in before we go let me ask you are you passionate about change are you looking for more meaning and maybe a little more purpose in your life if so we want to invite you to visit us at sacredchangemakers.com where you can sign up for our free five-day program, Awakening the Changemaker Within, and just come home to yourself at your very core. We believe that within each of us lies the possibility to unleash the full realization of human potential. Change can be a regenerative force for good. All change begins within as personal transformation, which can then be expressed within our professional lives and ultimately creates a regenerative social impact in our world. Again, you can find our free program at sacredchangemakers.com and our growing network of changemakers are actually our sponsors who help us to keep doing our work in the world. So if our episode resonated with you today, we hope you'll consider joining us. And for now, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for the work you do to make our world a better place. Until next time, lots of love.